Hello there and welcome to the podcast 1201. You are joined by me, Callum Roper, and Ollie Walwyn. Hello everyone. And I'm also joined by Councillor Callum Watt. Good afternoon, Callum. How are you doing? Yeah, not doing too bad. Thank you. Um, it's The weather's perked up since we had a few rainstorms over the last few days, but we've also got a lot of news to be catching up with. It's been a while since our last recording. So we're going to touch on the launch of GB News, this new alternative uh, network that has been launched this week. We're going to look into the motivations behind it and also some of the figures behind it and have a discussion. Is this going to succeed? Is it going to fail? Or has it actually found a niche in the market? We're also going to move on to the by-election results that came out this Thursday, well, this Friday morning gone, the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, which was a shock Lib Dem win. The Tories thought that they had it fairly safe with a huge lead going into it from 2019, but the Lib Dems turned it around significantly. So we'll be looking at that and also the implications for the Blue Wall and for Labour. Moving on to other Labour news, we'll also be looking at the former Speaker and Tory MP John Burko's defection to the party. What does this mean again for Labour? Is it a new appeal that we have as a party or is it something completely different or should it be taken in isolation? And then finally, we'll be touching on the European Championships. If you're not a football fan, you're going to be struggling over the next few weeks to avoid the football and obviously on this podcast, we could not resist to drop it in somewhere. But we'll be looking at the politics behind the taking the knee, which has caused some outrage amongst England fans um, who have booed the England players for taking the knee in taking a stand against racism and saying enough is enough. We wholeheartedly oppose racism. We'll be looking at some of the motivations behind that and why some England fans and some elements of the media seem to think that this is a Marxist action run by Marxists. But we'll return to the uh, first piece of news that we've got. That is the launch of GB News. This is a, uh, a, a new news network, so-called opinion-led news, um, which is a new format uh, very much uh, trialled by Fox News over in the States. So this potentially could be seen as Britain's answer to Fox News. It's been uh, led up by Andrew Neil, who's one of the uh, prominent right-wing figures that we see heading up this organisation. And they've cherry-picked a number of different journalists from across news networks. So not just uh, your traditional news networks, but also some more alternative voices, as they would like it to be seen. Very much painting themselves to be outside of the mainstream of the BBC and uh, Sky News and uh, really trying to promote what they would call free speech. But uh, Callum, with the launch of GB News, is this really a, a new dawn for news in the UK or is it doomed to be a failure? It's, it's a very ominous dawn, if, it's, uh, if so. Um, you know, it's obviously an attempt uh, to create a sort of Fox News opinion-led um, news outlet in this country. I haven't seen any evidence that it is, uh, and obviously the point the point that is often made is that it's just another right wing outlet, um, and transposing the the hysteria of the Telegraph and the Daily Mail to our screens, which is probably much more dangerous because increasingly few people read the newspapers, but plenty of people still watch television, and obviously. Uh, there'll be clips online and that sort of thing that will be used to try and uh, to try and influence people in a more right-wing direction because this is a, a very right-wing project. You only have to look at the people who are involved, people like Andrew Neil um, and so on. Um, but apart from him, there aren't really any big names that I've actually seen involved in it. You know, there's speculation about Piers Morgan, for instance, but people have to remember that he actually has quite a poor relationship with uh, with with Andrew Neil and that there might be a rival, so there might be an ego thing going on. But without indul- indulging a sort of Kremlinology uh, uh, about all of this, um, I haven't seen any evidence yet that they are actually getting uh, any sort of real a share of the of, of the media um, of the audience rather. 
uh, over the last week or so. I mean, obviously, it's still a very new channel, so it could grow. Um, I think that I don't think that it's really going to grow in terms of general TV viewership. I think that the strength of the right these days is much more centered online and, and creating those sort of uh, viral clips and interviews and that sort of thing. The other way that it might grow is if more traditional media like the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, those sorts of uh, areas pick up on things that are discussed on GB News and then report on them. This is how I can see them actually gaining some traction um, is is if they say, on GB News today, so-and-so said this, and then that becomes the story. I can see that very much becoming the way that the GB News becomes a thing and a, and a fixture on uh, on British television and a play, <clears throat> player in the political field. Um, but obviously, we do have to bear in mind that at the moment, I know that the Tories are trying to get uh, Paul Dacre in as chairman of Ofcom, but at the moment, um, it will Ofcom will not allow um, a, a, a news outlet to be completely biased. They didn't allow Fox News to remain on the airwaves for very long a few years ago. So we still have a layer of protection in that in that way. They can still fuck up. And obviously, as we've seen with some of the, the technical issues that, are, that they've been having, they're not a particularly professional outfit either, um, which uh, I don't know, maybe that's a comfort. I don't know. Um, but yes, it's uh, it has, certainly has potential to grow and become a player in our national discourse. Whether it will make a huge amount of difference, given that they will most likely push the same sort of uh, political lines that the Tories often get away with pushing in the media anyway, I'm not sure, but um, it could also uh, accelerate that drift uh, in, in terms of the zeitgeist amongst the media and, and therefore amongst the population as well. Um but, um, you know, we just have to see. I, I hope it will be a, a damp squib. I think people, progressives, people, the, the best thing the best thing that people who are progressive can do is to ignore it. Um, I think the best thing for the traditional media to do, if they don't want to be led, led away uh, into a place which, is, which they will not recover from, um, is to probably ignore it as well. Um, uh, otherwise, I mean, if they're sensible, people like the BBC will realise that if they report on what's happening on GB News, they will lose audience share. And they must understand that. Uh, so I think it very much depends on their actions. But from our perspective, I think it's just to, just best to ignore and ridicule as much as possible. Yeah, and already we've seen a uh, a reaction from a number of progressive people um, who have who have uh, very honourably sat down to watch GB News and see what they're offering, so we don't have to. Um, and they've been reporting back. And one of the interesting things that has happened is that they've reached out to the people that are currently advertising on GB News and saying, "Do do you realise the advertising agencies that you're?" paying for it are actually giving money to GB News. And a number of uh, brands have actually asked their adverts to be withdrawn from GB News channels, um, which I, I think is a real positive action against it. Don't give them your money, don't give them your time, don't give them any attention. And hopefully this sort of uh, news style, if we can even call it news, will be uh, will be drowned out. One of the Another interesting thing that popped up is that... Um, sort of touching on the the social media side of things is that gb news has also now got a tiktok account i, I don't recall seeing uh, bbc or sky news having such a thing and that's another interesting approach there are they trying to um almost go for the hits instead of actually report the news is that the the new way of uh, of how news is going to break through, or at least get these opinions out there if they put them on TikTok and they get shared widely. So that, again, is something to watch going forward. Ollie, I'm clean to get your take on the launch of GB News. What, what's your opinion on it at the moment? Um, what's my opinion on it? Well, um, I think it's... Um... I think it's extremely hateful. I think um, it's been set up by... 
uh, hedge fund managers and, and millionaires who have contributed uh, towards its goal of raising fundraising 60 million pounds for its launch. I think that uh, not many um, new, especially new uh, news organizations can afford to employ hundreds of full-time journalists just straight off the bat. And I think that tells you a lot about um, what we can expect to see from, from GB News in the future. And to understand it fully, I think, um, as, as one of you already mentioned, you've got to look at um, Fox News and by the, the Rupert Murdoch empire and how effectively um, it's successfully kind of changed the conversation in Australia and in the US as well. Um, and, you know, if that's what it's set up to do in the UK, then I am a bit uh, anxious about what it can achieve, especially if it's employing tactics such as um, taking advantage of social media. I think in general, um, the right have always been quite good at staying on top of, um, you know, popular ways to to get to people, to get their message out there. Um, but yeah, it's certainly positive to see some big brands uh, dropping advertising from it. So um, hopefully that's something that conti will continue and, and hopefully it will be a, a massive flop. But um, it, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly a bit... Um, a bit worrying, really. Yeah, and, and it's it is interesting. You do touch on that money there, and that's the that's the key thing here is that um, people like Andrew Neil may be fronting this, but the question is, who's funding it? Who's paying for this content? And who's uh, who's essentially bankrolling what is a a propaganda machine? And that's the real worrying thing, because it seems to me that increasingly with with people uh, now having trust reduced in in outlets such as B, uh, such as the BBC News, that actually we're going to start to see people looking for so-called alternative news. And normally alternative news means opinions that side with your opinions. And then you get this echo chamber effect, very much like what we see online, but it seems to me that over the airwaves, this is something that might be occurring. Ollie, you want to come back in? Yeah, I just wanted to um, touch on, um, it, it's got some some big names attached to it, but it's, it's worrying in that, um, you know, if they can effectively change the conversation in this country, um, like, like the sun has done for, you know, generations. Um, I think recently um, Rupert Murdoch he reduced the value of the 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 sum intentionally to to zero. It's, it's not worth anything, but it isn't uh, money that he's he's after by you know by funding that newspaper and many other um, news and radio organisations in the UK. It's to change the the public conversation, change the public opinion, um, and yeah, I, I think that's. That could be what we, we might expect to see from GB News. It's not necessarily there to um, be a cash cow and to generate loads of money. It's there to, you know, it's, it's there it's set up in, in contrast completely to a lot of um, grassroots funded um, news organisations that we've seen on the left recently, such as um, Navarra Media and, and the Byline Times, who, who fund um, from, their, from their users rather than from, you know, billionaires. And that's that's the key point I was going to come on to next was really what is the answer for progressive uh, news outlets now? Because obviously we we are very much aware of, of the examples you've given there with the Navarra Media, the Byline Times and a number of other outlets. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a consolidated effort from from progressive voices to put together something that can be consumed um far and wide and still be uh, still be considered news in, in the eyes of people that might not necessarily align with with our views but I suppose again this is this is the question about media going forward certainly the news do we want news that is reporting just the facts um, or as as we seem to be heading towards do we want news full of opinions even you only have to look at Sky News and, and BBC News. They love getting in controversial people now to almost debate uh, issues and, and create that interest instead of just reporting the facts for how they are and, and delivering that important news that people need, certainly during the pandemic and previously. 
So it's an interesting time ahead, as we've said before, um, when, when this idea of GB News was being floated. We very much consider ourselves part of the uh, the solution to this in that we need as wide as, as many voices as possible. We need a plurality of, of people contributing to the news, contributing to their local communities and reporting on the things that have to be said, coming up with new ideas. Callum, you want to come in there? Yeah, I just wanted to come in with a with a kind of radical solution, really, which is that, and to point out that ultimately, the media that we consume is its narratives are determined by the people that own that media. So the biggest issue is the fact that all of these companies, including GB News, as we've already discussed, discussed, are being funded by billionaires, you know, multimillionaires, and so on. The only way that media is going to become more balanced and fair in future is if media is predominantly dominated by corporatives. Because um, we've seen as well that you can have a state-run media uh, in the case of the BBC, but obviously they will, to some extent, kowtow to the government because even if it's not directly funded by the government, they still hold power over their ability to raise funds through the licence fee. Um, and even Channel 4 is obviously influenced to some extent by advertisers. Now, that might always be a case for revenue streams and so on, but they've got the same problem in that the government could potentially take away their charter. So, um, yes, I, I think that the future is in having and encouraging uh, there to be more cooperative news outlets. And the only way you will get that, I think, is through... Uh, primary legislation to break up these media empires simple as that brilliant radical solutions there and that's that's something we should be uh discussing and i think that that's something that's actually achievable why don't uh the people drawing up what will be the next labor party manifesto listen to ideas like that because actually we do need a solution that brings people in um and ensures that the the, um, the majority of people are being heard and actually the majority of people don't believe in some of the hate-filled rhetoric that you will see on GB News and they don't believe in some of these lies that are being told and they don't believe that uh, essentially we need a negative approach to solving our solutions, uh, to solving the problems that we have. We need real solutions, radical solutions and I think that's a great one there. Um, but Moving on now to the Chesham and Amersham by-election, this was a bit of an earthquake in itself and very much people talking about the issues affecting them locally. Um, the background to this uh, by-election was uh, very much controversy in the local area. Um, people were concerned with the uh, HS2 line that will be coming through the area. They were also concerned with the planning uh, regulation reforms that the government are proposing that would essentially take away local controls and give um, big developers free reign to build wherever they like. So uh, in Chesham and Amersham, this was the, the big debate going on. Uh, it's, ever since the seat's uh, inception, it's been a conservative, safe seat. Uh, it's never really been threatened that much. Um, but in this election, it felt a bit different. There was a lot of anger on the streets and on the doorsteps, and the Liberal Democrats were the uh, the, the challengers, if you like. They were the, the people breathing down the neck of the Conservatives, but they still had quite a lead to overturn, um, well in excess of, of uh, 16,000. Um, and Sarah Green, the Lib Dem candidate, came in promising that she would oppose HS2. She would oppose these planning reforms and people were proud of their area and they didn't want to see the massive developments that we've already seen in so many um, towns and villages up and down the country. And as it transpired on Friday morning, the Lib Dems came out with 56.7% of the vote to the Conservatives' 35 Five. Now that's an incredible swing. That is 
a huge swing that was completely unexpected, um, certainly on that scale. There was people, the Conservatives uh, were, were feeding, as you do, you get the sort of Conservative source on, on polling days saying that they're, they're confident they're going to retain the seat. And then it turned into they're confident they're going to retain the seat, but with a reduced majority. And then it turned into it's getting close. And then by the time we woke up on Friday morning, it transpired that they had lost the seat by this huge margin. It's absolutely massive margin. So I want to kick off this conversation um, by really saying after Ed Davey spoke on, on Friday, he said that this is a challenge to the blue wall. And Callum, is this a challenge to the blue wall? Is this a, a flash in the pan? Is this a very much a by-election being a, a localised issues being debated less about the national picture? Well, I, I mean, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, I think we have to be realistic and say that you know the the Liberal Democrats are the by-election experts. You know, you you can see that most recently in Richmond, for instance. Um, they have a long, long history of just in in particularly in in Tory held seats. Uh, they have a long history of of just piling in resources and seizing on some kind of local issue and ultimately driving home. They're very, very good at that. That this is you know it's a party which you know in my opinion really largely only exists to perpetuate itself. Um, and they're very, very good at um, this sort of electoral campaigning. Um, I think the, but there are other factors as well. Um, I think what it, what it really demonstrates is that unlike with the Hartlepool election, where a lot of people were sort of excusing the Labour Party's defeat there um, as being due to the vaccine bounce and the popularity of Boris Johnson and all of that nonsense, um, yes, of course, those are factors in in that victory for for the Conservatives. But evidently, this is not something that is in any way universal at all. Um, I didn't go to Cheshire, Cheshire and Amersham. Um, I happened to live with a couple of Liberal Democrats who did. Um, and yeah, there was apparently quite a lot of uh, anger uh, against the government in that uh, in that part of the world. There's a huge issue um, about planning legislation as well, which I'm acutely familiar with as well. Uh, by the way, speaking as a councillor myself, I had a briefing on the way that the government is trying to change planning laws at the moment to give local authorities a lot, lot less control. Uh, over what happens in their jurisdiction and give communities a lot less control as well. Um, and, uh, and really this isn't a, that is that isn't a left right issue that's you know you can you can you can see there's lots of uh, you know Tory voters who don't want developments going up um, willy-nilly near them without any planning and, and so on. It's a, it's a gift to NIMBYs if I wanted to be uh, cynical about it but um, and I, I understand there's quite a large rebellion in, in Parliament now, uh, possibly as a consequence of this uh, of this by-election. Actually, it's quite a large rebellion brewing amongst uh, Conservative MPs against those planning legislation uh, changes. Um, so this has already had an impact. Um, will it start to break down what Ed Davey has called the blue wall? Well, again. Like I said before, the Lib Dems are very good at winning by-elections, but they don't really uh, have much of a track record for then transforming that into uh, a bigger project. Um, so I can't see the south of the country going yellow en masse. I'm sure, and there's been discussions in the last week or so about uh, progressive alliances and so on, and there's this kind of dream, which I, I think I've talked about favourably in the past, actually, of you know, Labour holding on to the cities and, and the Lib Dems winning out in, in the countryside. And um, do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, sometimes that, that, that works, I guess, if you want to be really real politic about it. But I, I'm certainly not really in favour of formal national progressive alliances um, because at the end of the day, let's remember that it's not so long ago that the 
uh, Lib Dems ultimately went into coalition with the Tories and to create their austerity agenda, which we all live with today and was probably a, a, a huge factor in Brexit happening as well. So mm, I, I'm not sure that uh, I, I'm not sure that this will be transformed in, into the blue wall crumbling, uh, as, as was said before, the uh, a by-election is usually an opportunity for um, voters to express their anger at the governing party um, if they are unsatisfied with the performance of the government. And so you can very clearly see how um, tactical Conservative voters and tactical Labour voters have obviously voiced their opinions um, in this case and delivered the Lib Dems a victory. And you can see how it's all come together. Um, in in a very well run run campaign from their um, perspective, congratulate them on that. Um, but I don't think that uh, I don't think this will uh, this will roll over again. I think the important thing from the Labour Party's perspective is that it it kills that idea that the Conservatives are on some kind of universal uh, vaccine bounce, um, and it says that you know if we. Uh, couldn't win in Hartlepool, and if we can't win in Batley and Spen, we need to have a, a deeper look at ourselves rather than uh, just complacently saying that, well, the government's just doing well because they're doing well and therefore we don't have to do anything. Uh, I think that's what um, the left needs to take out of uh, out of this uh, development in out Chesham and Anderson. Brilliant. And uh, Ollie, would you share... Uh... Callum's scepticism of uh, Ed Davies' narrative of this election. Yeah, and I think he summarised it really well, actually. Um, you know, Lib Dems have always been um, the party of by-elections. Um, they typically emphasise and capitalise on the issues that people have with the current government at the moment. Um, and many, obviously, many constituencies don't get to vote uh, in in the four-year period that they're in government. So there's a lot of... Um, backlash against current policy and I think this time especially it's been about um, the handling of the pandemic maybe um, you know a lot of anger and I think there's a lot of factors in, in why it happened um, I think Callum summarized it really well and so I'm not going to talk about that anymore but um, I will talk about the 1.6 percent uh, vote share that the Labour had because that is and you can you, you get a lot of people in, in Labour and a lot of uh, Labour shadow ministers, um, you know, saying that it was because of the vaccine rollout or it was because um, of some other kind of exterior factor. Um, but, you know, it's, it's such a massively reduced share of the vote since the last election. That's, I think it was almost, um, if I'm right, 11, almost 11 and a half thousand people that didn't vote for Labour this time around which is just almost inexcusable. And as Callum says, I think if we if we see that again uh, at Batley and Spen, then that's going to have some massive implications on on the future of Labour and Labour Party policy, whatever that may be at the moment, and the future of Keir Starmer as well. There's already those on the left that are um, questioning what kind of future he has if he really can't um, pull his act together and actually you know, put forward something meaningful um, at these by-elections. How is he going to run the country? And that's that's the important question that I wanted to come on to, really, was the um, there seems to be two takes on this by-election when it comes to Labour's result. Now, we know that it was the worst ever by-election result for the Labour Party, um, and that's something we have to take into account here. But as you've as you've very well outlined there there is a number of people that are inclined to say well it's to do with the vaccine bounce and tactical voting uh, labor never had a chance here and we uh, simply uh, we have to put someone forward but it was just a, a local by election where we didn't really have a chance of having our um, voice heard whereas you have the other people at the other end of the spectrum that would argue that uh, actually, this is an example of, of why the Labour Party is failing to break through and we lost so many seats uh, over the last few years. It's because that we're not actually uh, speaking up for communities up and down the country. We're not actually listening to people. We're uh, putting our fingers in their, 
and our ears and saying, la, 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 um, look at us, vote for us, not actually engaging with people. Um, I, for one, think it's probably somewhere in between in this specific uh, by-election. Obviously, it is a, a Tory seat, Tory safe seat that was challenged by the Lib Dems, but it certainly shouldn't be the result where Labour come forth. The Greens got more votes than Labour. In um, the the CLP there apparently has around 600 members. So if every member of the CLP voted, then nobody else in the public would have voted for the Labour Party. That's concerning if it's, if, if it's numbers equating to only the members in that area voting for the Labour Party. Um, Callum, what's your take on this? Is it somewhere in between or is it a... Uh, potentially a symptom of, of a bigger issue here for Labour? I, I think that it's very difficult to draw conclusions from the actual Labour vote in this by-election because, as I said before, I think when you're faced with a first-past-the-post election, when you know that um, your candidate doesn't have much of a chance of winning uh, in a parliamentary election, uh, as important as this, I think it's quite rational for uh, many of those Labour voters to have lent their votes to the Lib Dems. And as I say, I'm getting it secondhand, but that's certainly what I've been told by the activists I know who were there. So, I, I, as I say, I think that it's I, I I think the bigger impact for for the Labour Party is more about what happens to the Conservative vote uh, in this by-election. You know, the fact that that just collapsed, um, either because Conservative voters were not motivated enough to vote for their own party, or, um, as I think is more likely, they voted Liberal Democrat because they knew the Liberal Democrats had a much better chance of winning, and that was their chance to give, essentially, their government a kicking, because, you know, this is a Tory seat for all intents and purposes, most likely at a general election, it will return to the Conservatives, um, though, though it might not, of course, and that would be a further indictment. Um, but from the Labour Party's perspective, as I say, I think it, it demonstrates that the Conservatives are not universally popular at the moment, which is a good thing, by the way. You know, there is an opportunity for us there. We just need to uh, find a way to capitalise on that and that. I think, means putting forward uh, a transformative vision for the country, which is what we were doing for nearly five years um, under the previous leader. And I think that, you know, as we've said many, many times before, we just need either Keir Starmer to step up and start doing what he promised to do, uh, which was to start articulating that transformative vision um, or stand aside and let someone else uh, uh, take it, or he needs to be challenged. One of those things needs to be happen, happen because otherwise we're going to have more Hartley pools um, and replicated across the country in a general election, we will lose um, dozens, if not 100 seats, probably, um, which would be utterly disastrous for British democracy, bad for the Labour Party, and ultimately bad for people as well. So I think it's important that we take the right lessons away from this. The, the Labour vote was not was certainly was not low because people weren't voting for the Labour Party in this case. People who vote Labour normally vote Labour were clearly, I think, voting tactically. I think the more interesting lesson to take from it is the fact that the Conservative vote um, is declining and that they are not universally popular and that we need to capitalize on that weakness right now absolutely and uh certainly we'll be keeping our eyes on the uh soon to come batley and spend by election we will uh endeavor to be reporting on that as soon as possible and the implications of that result whether that will be uh bucking the trend that we've seen in by elections for labor or in it will be very much following that trend remains to be seen. Obviously, polling is not the best indicator for a lot of the time. But moving on to other Labour news, as I mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast, uh, in quite a strange turn of events, or perhaps for some people, not so strange. 
Uh, John Burko, the former Speaker of the House and Conservative Member of Parliament, famed for his shouts of order, has uh, joined the Labour Party. This transpired in a um, interview with the Observer that he gave, and he's now joined the Labour Party, welcomed by a number of uh, of people, including John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, um, who have welcomed him to the party. So, what does this say about the uh, about the current appeal of the Labour Party? Is actually John Burko going on a bit of a transformation, a political journey, if you like, Ollie? Yeah, I think he might be. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think before he was uh, a Tory, he was a, a uh, he was a Thatcherite, and he was quite um, you know quite right wing. But you know, over the years, he might have um, he might have had more more liberal tendencies, and the current Labour Party probably probably does um, align better with with uh, what he believes in potentially than I mean that's certainly what he decided. So um, I think it does say uh, a little bit about um, the, the current Labour Party and, and what they stand for and who they appeal to as well. Um, this is certainly the first big name that I've seen in a while who has who has pledged their allegiance to um, to the Labour Party and certainly the first Tory that I've seen in a long time um, that I'm, I'm aware of. I'm aware of anyway. Um, so who's who's a notable person? I don't know. I, I think, you know, in, in the years we saw him as speaker, um, he was always quite effective, um, no matter who was speaking in the House, um, at being quite diplomatic. Um, and he also held his own uh, government to account and their own rules uh, and the House rules as well. And maybe, you know, maybe he doesn't want to be a, a massively right wing uh, authoritarian kind of uh, right winger like this government are. Um, and, and fair enough, fair play to him. Yeah, and it, it does seem to me that he's uh, certainly as, during his time as Speaker, we see that his uh, his approach to parliamentary democracy and, and uh, ensuring that the the proper systems are observed is 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 something to be applauded. Um, Callum, you want to come in? I do. I I. I... I really welcome this, actually. I think John Burkow, he became speaker while I was studying my A-levels um, in, in government, one, one of which was in government politics. And he was, at the time, a, a real breath of fresh air um, because this was in the midst of the expenses scandal, of course, um, and you used to, his predecessor was a guy called Michael Melton, who was frankly pathetic. Um, he's dead now, so maybe I shouldn't speak so Ill, Ill of him, but uh, he just, he couldn't control the chamber and he let so much slide in terms of uh, probity in, in public office. I mean, lots of the MPs that broke the law, well, they didn't break the law, rather, that's my point. A lot of MPs during the expenses scandal they didn't break the law. They were allowed to do what they did, but clearly, you know, things like the duck pond and 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 and, uh, and that sort of thing. Clearly, it would have been obvious to anyone who was reviewing, auditing those uh, accounts that, uh, that that what they were doing was was somewhat immoral. I mean, so there were some people, of course, who were, uh, I think, treated a little unfairly. Um, Barbara Follett, who was my MP at the time, um, claimed for security. Um, expenses uh, after she was assaulted um, and people criticized her for that which I think was very unfair um, but nevertheless John Burkow came in with this very strong very public message about how MPs the standards amongst MPs basically need to be raised we need to have more mature debate in the House of Commons as well the public doesn't like it was almost his slogan for that whole decade um, and to some extent, some to some extent, he succeeded. I mean, if you look at old debates um, in the House of Commons, there was it was a lot more a lot more raucous. Um, it's still pretty raucous these days, obviously. But I think it, it, I think he did succeed um, in improving the reputation of the House of Commons, at least, if not uh, the politicians themselves. Um, 
I think he I think he was the right man at the right time for that sort of thing. And obviously he was very entertaining as well. Um, but more seriously, I think he did stand up for um, the, the rights of uh, backbench MPs, um, for the smaller parties, I think for the public as well. PMQs became a lot longer and a lot more in-depth, um, for instance. Um, and, yeah, I think anyone who believes in the Nolan principles um, uh, of which basically uh, talk about you know honesty and integrity in public office um, he to me he embodies those so I'm very very pleased to see him in the Labour Party um, you know I, I'm sure we probably wouldn't see eye to eye on everything um, obviously you have to remember that he uh, he has come from the Conservative Party I imagine he'll probably be on the right um, perhaps not um, we shall see, but I'm, I'm very pleased, very very pleased uh, to see to see him there. The, the wider political significance is it. You know, I was watching the the interview, um, and it's been uh, insinuated that the reason why he's defected to Labour is because he wants that sweet sweet peerage that uh, that the Tories very cruelly denied him and. He was the first speaker in centuries not to get this, uh, a peerage after standing down and all of this nonsense. But I think it's important to remember, actually, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn actually offered him a peerage when the government um, chose not to. Um, and John Burkow actually turned it down, um, which I think is significant. Now, did he do that because he didn't want to be nominated by Jeremy Corbyn? That's a possibility. Um, you know, we know how people in, in the political establishment think about uh, Jeremy Corbyn, what that would look like and so on. Um, or did he turn it down because it's, he, as he sees it, it's something that, uh, as I say, on principle, the government should do um, or parliament should do as a whole. Um, I'm not sure he hasn't really explained that, but he has said very clearly that a peerage is not something that he's necessarily seeking. And to be fair, really, he doesn't need it. I mean, he's rocking around all over the place doing uh, public speaking. He's a private citizen. Now he can do what he likes. Um, in a way, it's a little bit like, I don't want to compare him to Tony Blair, but Tony Blair, you know, he's never taken on a peerage or anything like that because as I say, he doesn't need it. He's got his own public profile. Uh, John Burkow, uh, a much more principled and honest man in many ways, uh, in, in basically every way, in fact. Um, but essentially, in, in, this, in the same way, he's got his own platform, he's doing his own thing. Why would he need a peerage? I think that's probably his argument. Whether he'll take one in due course anyway is another matter, maybe quietly in a year or two, something like that. Um, who knows? I'm, I'm not sure, actually, now that he's explicitly come out um, as a member of the Labour Party, whether he would... If he became a peer, he would then sort of almost be obliged to take the Labour whip. So, you know, does he really, having built up this reputation as uh, a man of impartiality and as a defender of of, uh, of the constitution such as we have one, whether he would want to become a, a partisan politician? Obviously, he's joined the Labour Party, wants to get rid of uh, Boris Johnson. He said that very explicitly, but whether he would want to extend that to taking the whip um, in the House of Lords. Now, that's a very, very different matter. That's another layer of, of, of politics there that I'm not sure he'd want to go back to. But I don't know the guy. Um, we, we can only speculate, as I have just been doing on his future. Um, but in principle, I'm, I'm very, very pleased to see him in the Labour Party. And uh, I hope I'll get to run into him at some point. I'm going to conference this year. I hope that he's there. Um, I will very gladly shake his hand. Absolutely, that will be uh, great. I'm going to conference as well. Perhaps we'll bring our microphones and do a, a impromptu conference podcast. No, that's uh, not a bad idea, is it? After now after that quiet one, it's a good idea. Yeah, we we can do that. That'll be fantastic, and that will uh, give lots of work for Ollie to do for editing. Sorry, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> that's not funny. Um, so we'll move on to our our last. Uh, our last item we were going to discuss, and it's uh, touching on the Euros, the European Championship finals, the uh, the football competition that comes around every four years. It was five years due to the pandemic this time around. And um, before every match, uh, the 
England team have committed to taking the knee uh, in their in their fight against racism in, in football and in wider society and saying that as young influential men that they do not want to see this anywhere in, in society. But this has drawn much criticism, rather surprisingly, from firstly on the terraces, a section of England supporters, not all of them, but a section of England supporters have, have booed them every time they've taken the knee. Um, and also a number of prominent f- public figures, uh, Pretty Patel, Nigel Farage, have come out and saying that this isn't something that they should be doing. It's actually feeding into a uh, Marxist political agenda, if you were to believe the uh, the words of Nigel Farage, which uh, this podcast certainly does not endorse. Um, so really, I just wanted to open this discussion out because football over the last year has tried to take a stand against racism. Um, there's been historically huge problems with racism on and off the pitch. Um, the football authorities and certainly the players are now trying to take control of the situation. They're trying to say that this is not welcome in the game. Um, but still, the uh, people continue to boo. Still, people seem to think that this has some sort of dark political agenda. Um, but it isn't. It's people standing up against racism. It's people that are saying that we have had enough of racism. And still they get booed and still they get told that they're wrong. Ollie, what's your take on this then? Well, it's good to hear that um, in the last game, Scotland versus England, uh, I didn't hear any boos in the in, in that one. But I think, um, you know, the, the solidarity of the England team uh, with each other and the solidarity of, of Gareth Southgate as well, I think he's been great. Um, the statement and the reasoning that he gave um, was actually, for me, one of the most, um, like, it inspired me most to feel patriotic. Um, and I think that was really powerful. Um, you know, he talks about uh, what what being British mean, means to him and his values. And I think um, he, he just hit the nail on the head. And I, I think, I hope that has put to rest a lot of the the issues that were being whipped up by the right about uh, this being a, a, a Marxist gesture. But, you know, it's also not been endorsed um, by um, a lot of, of prominent politicians such as Boris Johnson and, and Priti Patel. Um, they they think taking the knee is, is some kind of gesture politics, which is just, you know, it's just antagonising and, and, and almost ironic to the point of being stupendously funny because they've just spent the last um, however long you know clapping for carers whilst also not giving them um, a pay rise in fact giving them a real terms pay cut so to to accuse it of being a you know some kind of gesture politics is just and that they they prefer action over um you know over over gestures this is the the same government which has just run a, a, a racism inquiry into um, the British institution to to determine that there is no institutional racism in the UK, which is just you know it's it's awful and they really should be held to account better than they are by the the mainstream media, because this is a movement which requires all of us um, to be active in our solidarity. Um, with everyone and everyone who's been marginalised um, in, in the past, um, you know, generations in the UK. It's just so important. I can't overstate that enough. Yeah, and uh, we all know this government has a uh, a record of doing things when it seems popular to their, their support base and then immediately stop doing them once they feel that it won't win them votes. It's never about the integrity or the morals of any situation it's always about how does this look to the electorate and that's that's disgusting certainly on issues of racism you must take a firm stand against it and if you're not going to take a firm stand against it get out the way and let someone else take charge because it's unacceptable callum yeah i think ollie's uh, hit the nail on the head in 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 many ways the government is uh, once again trying to gaslight us um, by saying by saying they want act, to see action from the players while at the same time doing everything they possibly can 
to uh, put the boot in the face of people of color um, in virtually everything that they do. Uh, I think, I, and anyone sort of criticizing footballers for you know standing up, even if you, even if you're saying that it's just a gesture. Well, I mean, look, we've had think it's just so disingenuous. We we've had kick racism out of football and other such initiatives for decades. You know, this is this is just an it's arguably you could say at the very basic level, this is just an extension of that. Um, so it's cynical uh, appropriation of this particular very vis- visible uh, gesture, I guess, um, to try and argue that they shouldn't be uh, speaking up against about social issues, and it's complete and utter nonsense. They have absolutely every right as as citizens to talk about social issues. Um, and actually, it's interesting that they are themselves arguing that it's not just their right, it is their duty to talk about it. I mean, they're not discussing the, the it's not like they're just talking about the intricacies of the budget or, you know, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. This is something very, very basic. Although, as I say, they, they have every right as, as citizens to talk about, uh, you know, to share their political opinions and so on. Even if you even if you don't believe they should be getting involved in that sort of thing, a very basic thing like anti-racism and, and standing up for, in many ways, their fellow colleagues, friends, family, citizens, you know, this is something that footballers should be, need to be doing, and they are acknowledging that, and I'm inc- incredibly proud of them. And I think, actually, the people who are booing them, Ollie says you couldn't hear them, um, you know, it might be a little more uh, audible if you're actually at the ground. But you know what? I think they're a very small minority. It's very easy to make a lot of noise, uh, especially in a stadium like that, if you've only got a small number of people. So I'm fairly confident that these people are, are a tiny minority. And I think the media that sympathizes with them, sadly, uh, is is cynically amplifying their voices when they really, really shouldn't. Um, and I think that the, those footballers are doing the right thing and I hope they continue to and I hope that we see more uh, footballers uh, standing up for their beliefs and for their fellow man. Absolutely. What a great way to finish the uh, podcast on there on that on that very important note, but that, that very upbeat note. Um, so I've been Callum Roper. I've been joined by uh, Callum Watt. Good day, sir. I'll see you next time. Thanks, Callum. And I've been joined by Ollie Woolwyn. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to Podcast 1201, and we will see you very soon next time. <laughs>